Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a wonderful guest here with us today for Spirit in Action. Her name is Hayat Imam, and her activism has taken her all over the peace and social justice activism map, and in many places on the map of the world. Hayat was born and raised in Bangladesh, and she first came to the USA in 1964. Her activism has included a sizable dose of women's advocacy and empowerment, notably with the Boston Women's Fund, and she was one of the powerful speakers at the 2017 Women's March in Boston. Hayat's work has included wide-ranging peace activism, and a recent manifestation of that has been sharing about her Muslim faith with the public through a four-session course about Islam. We're headed now to Boston, Massachusetts, to visit with Hayat Imam by phone. Hayat, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Hello, Mark. Salam alaikum. I'm greeting you with our, and also your listeners, with this Muslim greeting, and wish you peace in your life every step of the way. Well, thank you for that wish, and of course, I return it to you as well. You're in Boston, or at least in the Boston area. How long have you been there? Well, from the early 70s, really. It's been a long time. It's my main home, away from home, as it were. You came to the U.S., I understand, in 1964. Where were you located between that and the early 70s? I was at the college for till 68, and then I went back to Bangladesh for a little bit, and then returned here in the early 70s. So have you known any other part of the U.S. besides Boston? I mean, I'm trying to drum up business for Wisconsin, where I live. Okay, well, I must visit you first before we make any rash decisions. <laughs> but I have basically lived in Boston most of my time here, except for my four years in college, which was in Ohio. Well, we want to talk to you about your activism and how that flows from your Muslim faith. But first, I wanted to ask you about your name. As soon as I saw your name, which was passed to me by Gail Leander Wright, a book publicist who refers a lot of writers to me and who said you were a great friend and person, by the way, I was curious about the meanings of your name, Hayat Imam. Of course, I'd heard the word imam in the Muslim context, but I had no idea what hayat means. So let me start with the last name. Imam is the word one uses for a leader in the community. As you might know, Mark, the Islamic religion doesn't actually establish a priesthood or anything like that. So the imam is usually a delegated person from the community who is seen as a leader. So my family name is Imam, uh, which probably originates from a situation where my family was considered community leaders. And my first name actually is Hayat, but it's actually a piece of a longer name, which I'd like to share with you all. My full name is Abe Hayat. So Hayat means life, and it's the same root as Al-Khayam and a few other words that you might recognize as meaning life. Abe Hayat is water of life. So that's what my full name means. I don't tend to use Abe Hayat so much because it's a bit long for Americans to pronounce. 
Um, but you were speaking a little bit about the origin of our name. And mostly, you might know that most Muslims use either Arabic names or, as my name is, it's a Persian name. So that's where the root is of Abi Hayat Imam. But you should probably call me Hayat. Well, I think Water of Life as a name is truly beautiful and very fitting for you. Did your parents know something ahead of time, or is this a common name in Bangladesh? Well, you know, it's a very unusual name. I had a very interesting story that happened in my life many years after my father died. I met an elderly lady who used to live in Calcutta when my father was a young college student there. There were far relatives of ours distantly related to us, and my father, being in Calcutta, would visit them occasionally, she remembered, uh, sometimes have a dinner as a starving student, I guess. But on one of those occasions, she said, he told her and her family that if I ever have a daughter, I would like to name her Abe Hayat. When I heard this years and years later and realized that I was that person that he eventually named Abe Hayat, it was such a moving experience for me. Well, it is for us, too. And again, because of your life of activism, that is the water of life being poured out for all kinds of people. And the the person who came from Calcutta you're referring to, was that person Muslim as well? Yes, she was a relative of ours, a Muslim lady. There are many Muslims in India. And this was way before partition, so there were even more Muslims living all over India. Well, and partition is something I was thinking of, knowing that you're a bit older than I am, that you came to the U.S. in 64, and it's in the 40s that the partition of India and the establishment of Bangladesh and Pakistan, and all this division happened. You were born into that milieu, weren't you? Yes, but just a baby, so I didn't really, and it was a couple of years after, so I was not fully aware of that history until I grew up. But I should say that all along, since you were wondering how I became an activist, I think my parents' influence was huge in my life. Bangladesh, which was originally East Pakistan, as you might remember, is, like many countries, very class-conscious, a very class-based society, which is different from a caste system, which the Hindu system is. In Islam... It's a very egalitarian message from the religion, but still many people forget that and become very class conscious. But somehow my parents were able to supersede that kind of thinking and go back and be influenced by Islam's egalitarian message in which really the message is that the ranking of human beings should not be on money or power, but on piety. Our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in his last, last words on earth in a sermon that he gave, and I'll just quote the last bit from that, said that, recognize that among Muslims, no one stands higher or lower than anyone else except in virtue. So I think my parents kind of really internalized that message, and we as children were influenced by that. But later on, jumping ahead a bit, I was lucky enough to come to college in the United States. And here I should say that my mother had a big influence on me because she was quite 
adamant that I should have an education before I got married. I was already about 17 then, and marriage proposals were coming in. But she said, no, you must get your degree first. But the college I went to was a small women's college in Ohio. And somehow, by some great luck, I had a professor there, Dr. T.A. Bisson, who was an old China hand and a very loved professor at Berkeley University. But because of the McCarthy hearings, he had been let go of his position there, and we were lucky enough to get him. And he was also a great influence on me regarding activist thinking, social justice, all of that. Oh, that's wonderful. So how long were you in Ohio? Well, I was there for the four years of the college, and I had Professor Bisson throughout. It was a wonderful college. It was very small, but many, many foreign students had come there as well. So we had quite an amazing, vibrant community. Dr. Bisson was an unusual professor because this is the you know early 60s, but he was teaching us about the Vietnam War. I read Chomsky's book on the war under his tutelage. He was talking about poverty in America. He made us read the book, The Other America. So he was also very forward-thinking and helped us learn about social justice. Your education there in Ohio primes you to be socially engaged. How did that play out in terms of your work life? Basically, right after college, I began a young family, and we settled in Boston, But we were both, my husband and I, were extremely conscious of certain issues that concerned us. So I think uh, one of the earliest issues that we got involved in was the anti-nuclear movement. And in 1977, there was a huge occupation at the Seabrook nuclear power plant because they were trying to build a new power plant. And we had 1,400 people there who got arrested and My husband was one of them, and I was also part of it in the support camp. So I think that was one of the earliest concerns that we had. And then subsequently, a group of young mothers, including myself, five of us, wrote a book about parenting in the nuclear age called Watermelons, Not War, published in 1984. Then eventually, I went back to a master's degree and then came out and started my work life, uh, which was what you were asking about. My first work, and much of my work really happens to be about women's rights. My first work was in a program supporting ending violence against women. I mean, this is a fundamental right of all human beings, in, and in some ways, it's sort of the DNA of the United States, I would say, because the Constitution does talk about the right to freedom and safety. But somehow we're not up in arms when this measure of security is denied to hundreds and thousands of women. So violence against women has been always a concern of mine. And then I was the director of the Boston Women's Fund, eventually, which addresses the economic vulnerability of women. And we were a conduit for getting funds to women organizers in society. After that, I got into some international work as well. You've grown up with Islam around you, and you've already mentioned the egalitarian aspects of that. Does that extend to men and women? Because in the United States, as you said, a egalitarian society in so many ways, 
we're still guilty of the sin of slavery, and women's repression happened for much of our history in this country. And that women, even though it says all men were created equal and men supposedly meant all human beings, because it said men, you could limit women from having the same rights. Your perspective coming from Bangladesh would be valuable to me, as well as your involvement with Islam. So equality of men and women in Islam, in Bangladesh, and in as you see it in the United States. So I'll immediately draw a distinction, which is what is advised and found in the Quran and also in the ways that our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, conducted his own life vis-a-vis women and how he treated them and so on. I would draw a distinction between that ideal and what happens in patriarchal Muslim societies and patriarchal non-Muslim societies. So there is that difference, and I would say that there's a gulf between what is expected and what is actual. In the Quran, every single spiritual duty that a man and a woman has to accomplish is exactly the same. However, there are social differences because of social and physical and biological differences between men and women. But at no point does the Quran ever say that women are less in any way, that men are superior in any way, and even if some verses are read in such a way by men who have been the main interpreters of the Quran up to this point, when a closer reading always shows that that is not correct. I'd like to read a verse that is rather more general. It's not just about men and women, but I think it's the context in which we should be thinking about all relationships. So this is from chapter 4, verse 135, Mullah Rahim, which means, I begin in the name of God, merciful and compassionate. O you who have chosen to be graced with belief, stand up firmly for justice, witness for God, even if it is against yourselves, your parents, and your relatives, and whether the case is of a rich person or a poor person, God is nearer to them than you are. I feel personally that this is calling us as our duty and responsibility to work for justice, and how can there be justice if there is a gap and a difference in how one treats women and men? Could you mention for me, in part because I'm ignorant about this and I would like to have my ignorance evaporated a bit, the importance of other writings beyond what's in the Quran. You know, in Jewish practice, there's not only the Torah, the five books of Moses, but there's other holy writings and then there's writings about the writings and all of those have their place in Jewish practice. In Christianity, likewise, there are writings and then there becomes teachings of the church and there becomes doctrines that go on. What are those pieces in terms of Islam? There's wonderful scholarship out there on interpreting the Qur'an. But the difference is this. The Qur'an is immutable, whereas every other scholar's work I personally would respect, read, try to learn from. However, I don't feel bound to them. And I think that is a very important factor because in Islam, perhaps one of the things that appeal to me the very most, the whole point is to build a personal relationship with God. And yes, there are many, many good books that can teach you that, 
but you are also expected to study the Quran and understand it because to really understand who you are as a real Muslim, what does it mean to be a Muslim? The word Muslim means submission to the will of God. What does that mean exactly and how does one do that? I don't think anyone else can tell you that. This is something that is an absolutely personal quest that is our own path, our own journey, and we can certainly be guided by good thoughts from other people, but I have to think about it for myself. And certainly I resonate with that as a Quaker. I've been Quaker basically all of my adult life, but I was raised Catholic. And it was kind of interesting. Up to the age of 10, we had in Catholic Mass the Latin Mass, Things were said in Latin, which, of course, is not the language of people growing up in Wisconsin. For you, Arabic is not the language of Bangladesh. And I'm curious how the language comes into you. Again, I grew up saying a spiritu sante tu tuo and things in Latin that I didn't really know. It wasn't my language. So Arabic for you is a foreign language or was? I, I don't understand how that works. Yeah, no, it is certainly a foreign language for me. And we all learn the verses of the Quran by heart that are used in the prayers. So our prayer, which is five times a day for all Muslims, is all done with the verses of the Quran. So we know what those mean. I personally, that's why I was so impressed with Michael Burkel for the effort he made to learn classical Arabic. I have never made that effort myself. But I am very, very grateful to some extraordinary translations that are out there. And I've read many different versions and have picked the one that resonates the most closely with my own thinking. So I rely on good English translations. And by the way, folks that are listening wherever you are across the United States, and hello to you, the Michael Burkle that Hayat is referring to is someone I interviewed. The program aired just maybe about a month ago. If you come to NordenSpiritRadio.org and you search for Burkle, which is B-I-R-K-E-L, if you search for that, you'll find my interview with Michael, who led a workshop that I took at a National Quaker Gathering called Reading the Quran as Friends. I think it's really valuable to listen to him because he's listening from the outside. And I, I love to hear how that looks from the inside in your case, Hayat, because it seems to me that try as we may, we're going to be fallible. We don't know what it's like to be you. That's why I'm so happy to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit more about your activism. What was your master's in that you, it was part of your continuing education after your kids had moved along a bit, I think. I wanted to work with people, so it was a master's in education and counseling. That's how I went into that work with the victims of violence against women. But really, in the end, I've ended up in the field of development work. So I worked in USA on, on these two organizations, and then I've also worked in Bangladesh and in Indonesia and the Philippines. All of these countries, I was working on women's development programs sometimes under the auspices of the United Nations, but other times, like in Bangladesh, under the auspices of one of the largest NGOs there, BRAC. But basically, my work was fundamentally about building social justice movements. I lived many, many years in Arabic countries. 
I've lived in Iraq and Syria and Tunisia. So I speak a little bit of Arabic, but just colloquial Arabic. As you know, my work here with Spirit in Action is about lifting up people who are doing world healing. And I think anything that we can do to reduce racism, prejudice, it seems very valuable. And I think you've been on that work for a long time, sexism as well. Have you had to deal much with facing you, racism or the prejudice that comes because you're of a minority religion or because you're a woman in this country, both in your life before coming to the U.S. and in the U.S.A.? How much have you had to deal with that personally? Let me just stay with the U.S. because, you know, I came as a young girl and I had never experienced anything like prejudice before I came. But these are difficult times in the U.S. today. You know, I feel that even since I've come, the United States has changed quite a bit, especially since the Trump administration has come into power. The divisions have sharpened, and it feels to me almost like there's more permission now in society to despise other people. And, of course, as a Muslim living here, and every Muslim who lives here has been affected by this, but not just Muslims, you know, other many non-whites from indigenous people, black people, Jewish people, Latinos, immigrants, we are all being seen as dangerous and violent and fanatical, and, and it's just a really ugly scene in my mind. I don't know if you know this, but hate crimes against Muslims have increased by 200% everywhere that Trump has had rallies. That's a shocking statistic. Uh, just yesterday I was reading the mayor of Milwaukee blamed President Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies for an acid attack on a Hispanic resident. So, yeah, I, I think things are pretty hard. As an immigrant myself, ever since I've been here from the very beginning, I'm completely used to the favorite statement that comes from anybody who somehow does not like an immigrant, which is go back to where you came from. We're all used to that. But never have I experienced such genuine hostility until 2017, and right here in Boston. So I'm realizing that much of this feeling, this anti-other people feeling, and I hate to say this, but mostly it's white people feeling this, uh, was probably under the radar, but I didn't even realize it, and it's all coming out now. One of the great heroes that I've read about in history is Mohandas Gandhi, and I was so sad to watch how history evolved there. I mean, there was the moving forward to get rid of the British occupation of India and both the Muslims and the Hindus working together and the division that happened, which then Pakistan, East Pakistan, all of that was part of the further consequences of that. Did you not experience prejudice growing up in Bangladesh about well, I guess, you know, the Muslims were in the majority there with respect to Hindus or other groups or Christians or whatever. Who were the minorities there? Okay, so start with why did this thing devolve the way it did? Because you're right. In the early days fighting against the British, Hindus and Muslims were working together. But I do blame the British for dividing and ruling, and that is their hallmark way of ruling in every colonial country. That was one of the tactics to divide and rule. So I think the colonial powers had a lot to do with some of the divisions all over the world, tribe against tribe or religion against religion. 
But that division that took place after the British left, as a practical consequence, that division was absolutely ridiculous. I don't know if anybody's looked at a map on how Pakistan and India were left after the British left. Pakistan itself was divided into East Pakistan and West Pakistan with thousands of miles of enemy territory, quote-unquote, in between, which was India. So you had this country on two sides of India. So there was actually a ridiculous way of dividing up, and it's just the most egregious example of divisions that have happened all over the world that are still coming back to haunt us. For instance, the carving out of all these countries in the Middle East that made no sense. For instance, Jordan and Iraq and Syria all were chopped up into countries by the British as they left. A recent example of this problem is the Kurdistan problem, the Kurds, because every country has been left with a piece of the Kurdish population when basically they could have easily carved out a country for the Kurds, which they did not do. So I'm digressing a little bit, but going back to your question, Pakistan was divided so that the majority would be Muslims. And East Pakistan, which then became Bangladesh, was Muslims mostly. So I really didn't feel any. And I lived in other, the other side of Pakistan. So as Muslims, we were not expected to feel any kind of a prejudice because the Hindu and Christian populations were pretty small. And I'm sure they felt some things, but I'm not sure what. But I don't think there was any huge divisions like the ones that I'm seeing today in this country. I'd like to pursue that more, but I do want to remind our listeners that they are tuned in to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On the website, you'll find more than 14 years of our programs, free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests. So today we're speaking with Hayat Imam, and you'll find some connections to her via our website, but all of our guests of these past 14 years. And you'll find links to groups there part of. There's a place to post comments. Please do come to NordenSpiritRadio.org, rate this program, and give us your comments. Let us know what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong, because we'll learn from you. There's also a donate button. This is full-time work that's supported by listeners, not by corporations and not by the government, but because you want to see it continue. Please help us so we can reach out to all of these stations nationwide. Right now, there's something over 40 stations nationwide wide carrying our programs. Please support us, and even more so, support them, because they're doing invaluable work providing alternative music and news you just don't get anywhere else. Mainstream media, the media that's controlled right now, 90% of it is controlled by just six corporations. That's far too limiting of a voice, and community radio provides you that alternative voice. So help them with your hands and with your wallets, and let's make a difference in the world. Again, we're speaking with Hayat Imam. She's out in Boston area, and she was referred to me by Gail Leander Wright. I'm very thankful to Gail, and I'm thankful to Hyatt again for being here for us. Uh, The question that I asked you about the perspective of the Hindus or the Christians in Bangladesh seems to me to be parallel. I mean, you said you didn't experience prejudice maybe against Islam, which is part of your faith, 
But the point in the United States is that it's the minorities who usually bear this kind of trouble. And so in the U.S., one of the great problems we have is our white privilege. And we don't see a problem because it's not hitting us. And I'm just wondering if there is a lesson to be learned all around the world. I, I try and do this because, as you know, I think I lived in Africa for two years. I lived in West Africa, Togo, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And I got to see things on the ground. And I still had white privilege because I was assumed to be a, a rich person. But I actually was present at one point where there was a big demonstration, supposedly in support of the president, the dictator, saying down with the colonists. And I looked around and I realized in my village, I was the colonist. And so if there was violence, I knew which skin they would go for. But you don't have any particular insights or any observations from your life about experience in any of these multitude of countries you've lived in. I think the key here is to look at who has control and power, and that will always be the source of the prejudice and the privilege. So it doesn't have to be Muslims or a religious group. You have to know that whoever has control and power will consolidate that power, and that will go against those who do not have power. And that could, of course, cut along religious lines, but not necessarily can be sex, it can be ethnicity, it can be sexual identity, it can be so many different things. I have exactly that same feeling. It's more important to look at power. And I heard about this when we tend to think, I think, of all the religions that Buddhism is maybe the most peaceful of them. But still in Sri Lanka, where which is essentially ruled by a group of Buddhist monks, that the prejudice, the power led to unfair treatment of the Tamils there, for instance. So power is a very dangerous thing. It's very alluring to use it badly. Yes, very tempting to keep it. So you'll do anything to keep it. I would like to make a comment on uh, this situation with Buddhists, especially because it relates to Bangladesh. As you probably know, we all think that the Buddhists could not be violent because their religion is so peaceful, which it is. But again, you sometimes see what the good books tell us are not necessarily how people behave. So in Myanmar, you probably know that there was horrific genocidal ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya people who have now fled, millions have fled from Myanmar and have come into Bangladesh and they're all living there now, terrified to return even though Myanmar said, yes, it's okay for them to come back, but there's no guarantees from any side, including the United Nations, on the fact that they could be safe when they go back to Myanmar. So they're all still in refugee camps in Bangladesh, right, as of this moment, suffering. And how is it that they end up in Bangladesh? Is that just because proximity, you're close enough that they can get there? Are there other countries that have accepted the Rohingya as well? Not really. So it is the former. There is a border that they could cross, and also because a lot of them are Muslims. But I don't think that's the issue. I don't think they were cleansed out of that area because they're Muslims. That's basically not the reason. The reason is that that area is full of resources, and many other countries are interested in those resources without getting into too much detail here. 
Well, one of the reasons that you came to my attention is your work for women's rights, women's equality, women's role in the world in terms of activism. And I note that in 2017, you spoke at the Boston Women's March. This was right after Donald Trump's election. And all across the country, there were vast numbers of women going out. One of my granddaughters carried a sign and one in the Minneapolis march said, Donald Trump, be good. <laughs> and <laughs> and which is which is really funny if you consider that was before Melania, before she had her work for Be Best. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. But anyway, you spoke as part of that and I did watch a number of videos online of different speakers there, but I didn't get to see you, unfortunately. Could you say a little bit about your involvement? Why were you there? What did you get out of the day and what did you share? So I felt very honored to be one of the speakers at the Boston Women's March and it was very, very empowering to be part of such a movement. And the anger and energy, I think, helped us all to launch into a process of four years of resisting what Trump stands for. So that was the inauguration of President Trump, but it was also, I think, the inauguration of a certain new way of resistance. And if you would like, I would be happy to share what I said that day. I really wish we could have the whole audience there along with you responding, but I'd love to hear what you shared. Would you? And I, I just, again, I want to tune our listeners to think this is happening in Boston, 2017, January, and this is before a vast group of people. Could you set the stage that way? How many people were there? How long were speakers going? That kind of thing. God, I think it was huge. It was over 400,000 people. <laughs> and, you know, my children were there and everything, and many of them, it was difficult to hear everybody, but it was vast. It was. It, I, I think the best view was the one I had standing on stage and looking out, and I was honored to be a fellow speaker along with some great speakers, including Ms. Elizabeth Warren. So here we are, we're sitting in front of this stage, part of a group of maybe up to 400,000 people. Hayat Imam steps up to the podium, and here she goes. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of God, most merciful, most compassionate. Salam alaikum. I start with words of peace because we are sorely in need of peace and harmony. We are in a sobering moment in history right now. And in a perfect world, you'd hear the full speech, but our broadcast time is limited. So please come to northernspiritradio.org, northernspiritradio.org, and listen to Hayat's wonderful oration. But right now, we'll tune back in for the conclusion of her address to the 2017 Boston Women's March. I invite you, in the presence of a higher power, to declare with me so loudly that Washington, D.C. and the world can hear you, I resolve to make a difference. And at that point, there's 400,000 people cheering loudly. So what was the reaction? I mean, I, people have been there for probably hours by this time. Did the enthusiasm stay high that entire time? Yes, there were because this was not only what people were saying on stage, but the energy of people with their signs, they were the most 
fabulous signs you could have imagined. And every woman there was wearing these little pink hats. So the energy was absolutely fabulous. And everybody there just felt so, so good to be there. Of course, you were invited to the stage because of your social activism, in particular of your activism for women. One of the things that you mentioned was women's reproductive rights. Is this viewed very clearly within the Muslim community? I I grew up Catholic, as I said, and clearly the Catholic world is divided in terms of their opinions about abortion. Generally, most of people would say abortion's bad, but maybe they still say we don't, we shouldn't make laws about it. How is that viewed from the Muslim community in this country and, and maybe in other countries? So I'd like to talk about this and just point out first that there are actually two critical areas for women. The first is economic rights, and the second, I would say, is reproduction and motherhood. And, of course, there are other concerns, but these two are what's shaping the lives of women all over the world. Hiring discrimination, the pay scale being so skewed, lack of upward mobility, lack of decision-making. These are all critical things for women. Also, under reproduction and motherhood, we've got reproductive health and rights being attacked, but there's also lack of daycare, lack of family leave, hardly any maternity leave, really, in this country, for instance, compared to so many other countries, poor health care, poor nutrition. You know, it just surprises me sometimes that the whole area of bearing and rearing children are only the responsibility of women as if every man on earth never got born of woman or nurtured by women. I mean, you know, it's, it's a joint issue for men and women, how many children to have, how healthy our children should be, who should look after the children. This is not just a woman's responsibility. And I think that this is a problem all over the world, and definitely it is a problem in the Muslim world as well, We have the same concerns, and beyond that, some additional concerns, because most of the Muslim countries have have a very heavy hand of patriarchy in them. We have the additional significant burdens of lack of educational opportunities, especially for poorer women in Muslim countries, lack of mobility, lack of decision-making rights. These are all fewer. So, yes, these are problems all over the world, I would say. And, again, I would refer to not Islam, the religion, as being the problem so much as those who control decisions versus those who lack the power to control them. So that's what the arena in which we must make a change and must make a difference, I think. And, of course, part of the problem in terms of Islamophobia is people look at particular countries or look at particular situations, power dynamics, and they attribute what's happening to the religion as opposed to power at work. And maybe this is a good time to transition to the workshops. I think you've been teaching four-session courses on Islam in the Boston area. First of all, what do you call these sessions? What led you to start presenting them? And how has that gone? It's a course I've developed. And as you say, it's four sessions. And the name of the course is Understanding Islam, a Muslim woman's perspective on the essence of Islam, the diversity of the Muslim world, and its relationship with the West. And I wanted to do this because I often see statistics such as 60% 
60% of Americans say they don't know any Muslims. But given on the one side that 60% say they don't know any Muslims yet, they have such very strong opinions and prejudices against Muslims without knowing any Muslims, without knowing anything about Muslims. So they'll call Muslims fanatics, violent. That's their impression. So I believe that these gulfs occur because people don't know each other. And so this is what I had really hoped to tackle in trying to do this course. My goal is to give people uh, a deep insight into who we Muslims are, what we believe, how we think. I try to address the stereotypes people have about Muslims. But I also want to share the beauty of the religion of Islam and how we regard other religions, especially the Jewish and the Christians, whom we call people of the book, with whom we feel a lot of kinship. But my hope is that at the end, people who come to my course will see that the values that Muslims hold dear are not so different from theirs. One of the things that I'm aware of, and you must teach this in the course, is I imagine that people in the United States say, well, if you're a Muslim, you're a Muslim, you're a Muslim, which in some ways, of course, is true. But I have a feeling that the implementation of Islam that you see in Saudi Arabia differs quite significantly from what you see in Bangladesh, from what you see amongst Muslims in the United States. How much diversity and unity is there? Is there a factual basis in the prejudice, the stereotype, or is that completely overblown? Actually, in my very first class, I start out by showing that Muslims come from all over the world. Islam is an invitation to all people in the world. So as a result, there are converts from every country over centuries and some new ones. There's a really a great deal of diversity in terms of how we look, how we, what clothes we wear, what food we eat, our culture, what language we speak. There are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. But at the same time, what is really fascinating is that there is a common Islamic bond through the faith. So any Muslim could go to any Muslim country, walk into the mosque, and seamlessly join in the prayers. He or she would be instantly accepted. So just to continue about, about the content of the classes, in the second class I do a deep dive into what's at the heart of Islam. I talk about the revelations of the Quran to the Prophet, peace be upon him. I talk about the five pillars, which are the absolute, you know, obligatory uh, responsibilities of every Muslim. And I talk also about what I feel is the true essence of the religion. In the third class, I talk about the early history of the Islamic community, Islam's contributions to civilization. And then I end with the class that talks about the relationship between Muslims and the West, the impact of U.S. militarism on Muslim countries, and what Muslims today, we all face in the USA today. And uh, we end up by talking about how we can move forward together in love and in support of each other. So it's really exciting for me to put this together and to share with others. I think I said there's four times you've done the course, and I, I think that's not quite right. I think you're in the midst of the third time through right now, and I think you're planning another one in the beginning of 2020. How do people register, get involved with this? Who, who's pulled into this? Is this just your immediate friends, or is it coming from the general public? No, I've done it. The three classes have been given under three different auspices. 
The first one was uh, an institution called the Beacon Hill Seminars. Uh, the second one was uh, a Jewish organization, which you all know about, Boston Workers Circle. And the third one has been under the auspices of Mass Peace Action. So the people who come are a few people that I know, everybody I know wants to do it. But there's also open registration, anyone can come. And the fees or the how the word gets out is dependent on who is actually organizing it. So if the Boston Workers Circle is the host, they do the they get the word out, they make the decisions about outreach and fees and so on. It's handled by these institutions. But the course is open to everyone. They're usually pretty booked up and I've I've had to turn away people with waiting lists also. If people are interested, I, there's at least three stations in Massachusetts carrying our programs. If they wanted to come and be part of your 2020 spring sessions, how would they get a hold of you? Who is that being sponsored by? The one in the spring will be sponsored by the Boston Workers Circle, so um, they could remember that and maybe look it up. So if people are interested in checking out the spring 2020 session with Hayat Imam, that's going to be sponsored by the Boston Workers Circle, you can go to their website, which is circleboston.org, circleboston.org. Of course, that's on nordenspiritradio.org. That's one of the possibilities for doing this. You know, I was disappointed, Hayat, when your speech as part of the 2017 Women's March in Boston, that it wasn't on the web. I couldn't find it. How about the next time you present this, you actually have it videoed so that people can see it more widely? I am thinking about some way to do something like that, but it isn't in the offing. Well, if it does happen this spring, I would love to include links to that on NordenSpiritRadio.org along with this program. So please keep me in mind if that does happen. You said that the courses have been, I don't know if it's standing room only, you've had to turn some people away. But I was wondering if it, the reaction to having the courses was all positive or negative, what feedback you've gotten. Islamophobia is very real and thriving in the United States right now, and anyone who lifts up their head too visibly can act as a lightning rod for some of the hate speech and the hate actions that are going on. Do you get people standing outside protesting or people said, I never thought about that and I can now consider Muslims as my friends? What is the kind of reaction you've had? I have had overwhelmingly positive reactions inside in the course itself. People, and I've been invited back every single time to give the course a second time in each place. I think people are often surprised by some things that they hear because there are so many misunderstandings out there. For instance, uh, about women, they're very interested in that. All the egregious things that women experience in Muslim countries are not in the Quran and mostly forbidden in the religion. Uh, Instead, women in Islam are given big economic rights such as inheritance of property, protections from forced marriages, There is no verse in the Qur'an that asks all women to be veiled. Instead, the Qur'an asks both men and women to be modest, which is something that they're surprised by. They're surprised by the fact that the rules of war are very strict and don't include behaviors that 
extremist Muslims are using today. And I think they're also surprised to hear that Muslims consider themselves to be coming from the Judeo-Christian traditions, and all the biblical prophets are, are very respected by Muslims. I'd like to read one of the verses from the Quran that surprises people. So this is chapter 3, verse 84. Bismillah rahman rahim I begin in the name of God, most merciful, most compassionate. We believe in God and in what has been revealed to us, and what was revealed to Abraham, Ismail, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and in the books given to Moses, Jesus, and the prophets from their Lord. We make no distinction between one and another among them, and to God do we bow our will in Islam. I think people are really, really surprised when they hear something like this because Islam seems and feels like we're such a faraway alien religion, but it, it isn't. It's part of the same tradition. Yeah, I've never actually heard that verse before, and I'm, I'm very surprised that I haven't. I'm, I'm curious as to why it doesn't show up. It does, it does to us. We, we grew up feeling nothing but love and respect for the religions of Christianity and Judaism. And because of that, because we are told that we must respect them, we grew up with the sense of camaraderie, and that is built into every Muslim. I'm grateful it is. So before we sign off, and I know we're getting near the end of our time together, are there some more words of wisdom that you, Hayat Imam, can give to us? Part of the issue that I'd like to deal with, I mean, Northern Spirit Radio is all about world healing. And it's important that Muslims from your side are doing the work, and I know that you are. How can your non-Muslim allies, how can we help out, what can we do to help change this conversation so uh, we want to decrease islamophobia we want to know all of our brothers and sisters and count them as friends well this might be a good moment for me to appreciate what you are doing uh, mark because i think helping open doors is really the best we can do people have to walk through that door themselves but what you've done is bring us closer giving people the opportunity to hear what other people think, and I hope that these are the kinds of things that will make a difference. But I'd like to start by thanking also one of the best allies that I've come across, which is uh, Michael Burkle, uh, whom you interviewed uh, a few uh, weeks ago. He has made such an exceptional job and a loving and a wise effort to understand the Quran, to learn the language. It, this is the kind of effort that if anyone would make, it would really change the world, I think. And I loved how Muslims reacted to him. <clears throat> what they said is, you explain us well. <laughs> I felt the same way. And he, so he's a true ally. Also, he recited from a verse that is so fantastic from the Quran. It's called Surah Nur, the verse of the light. It's a verse we all love because it's deep, mysterious, and also enlightening, as it were. You know, volumes have been written about this verse, and each of us has our own interpretation of it. But generally, I would say for others 
who would like to ally themselves with Muslims and help out when it comes to Islamophobia and help to end that. I would say that calling out anti-Muslim rhetoric whenever you hear it is something very important that you can do. So as you learn more about Islam and Muslims, people who come to my course, for instance, I ask them the same thing, to always call out anti-Muslim rhetoric and try and intervene. Also, intervene if you see someone being harassed or called out. As a non-Muslim, that intervention is really, really important to us Muslims. I also suggest joining certain organizations that are doing excellent work. There's a group called Council on American Islamic Relations. The short form of for, name for that is CARE, C-A-I-R. Uh, in the Boston area, the Muslim Justice League is a really good organization to support and find out more about. And I would say visit your local mosque, study and educate yourself. These are all really important things that non-Muslims can do to ally with and support Muslims. And so that's a really wonderful list that you've given us. I do want to remind folks that if you come to NordenSpiritRadio.org and you do a search for Muslims and you know, Quran, that kind of thing, you'll find a number of the interviews that I've done with folks. Again, there's so much peace and justice, equality, partnership, friendship work being done and we really need to know one another in order to fully appreciate, not be driven by other people's manipulations. So please educate yourself, and I try and help do that on Northern Spirit Radio. I think we have to, unfortunately, get off the phone, Hayat, but I do so appreciate your longstanding work. I mean, it's more than 50 years of work in the direction of bringing us together, of making this world a more loving, supportive, egalitarian, a really a thoughtful place. And I so appreciate your work. I'm so thankful that Gail Leander Wright connected me with you. And I'm so thankful you joined me here today for Spirit in Action. It was a joy and a pleasure to be here with you, Mark. Uh, folks, just remember that there are some bonus excerpts on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. Come to the site, listen to those excerpts, including the full portion of the Boston's Women's March 2017 speech that Hyatt gave. My appreciation to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every